Heyo! Hello, fellow songwriters, and welcome to episode 21 of the How Songs Are Made podcast. The podcast can now drink, <laughs> where we talk to notable artists about their songwriting process. I'm your host, Trey Xavier, and today I'm going to be talking to Revocation's Dave Davidson about how he writes songs. Today's episode is sponsored by the amazing DistroKid and their awesome HyperFollow feature. So what is HyperFollow? It's a completely free and awesomely powerful promotional tool for anyone using DistroKid. It is the one-stop shop for all the links to streaming services and stores for your DistroKid release. So this is the link that you give people when they ask to hear your band, right? And the second that you finish uploading your song, you can start marketing your release. Oh, Trey, are you just talking about this and you don't use it? No, I put one up yesterday and it's in the description. There's a video coming out tomorrow that has an original song that I wrote and you can pre-save it right now at the link in the description. Amazing, right? I put my money where my mouth is. I use DistroKid for all my releases. So as soon as it goes live, your HyperFollow page automatically updates to include all the links. Right now, mine is just a pre-save for Spotify, but as it gets uploaded to all the other stores, it'll be updated as it goes. So um, it's a super simple tool that every artist should use for their new releases. Check the link in the description for 7% off your first year of DistroKid. And now you know him from his bands Revocation and Gargoyle. The new album, the new Revocation album, Nether Heaven, drops September 9th. Please welcome my esteemed guest, Dave Davidson. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Hi. What's cracking, dude? Thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be on. We're here to talk about the new album from Revocation, Nether Heaven, which is uh, coming out on September 9th, as I mentioned. And... We're here to talk about how you write songs. You've written a lot of them. What number album is this for Revocation? I think it's our eighth full length. Yeah. So I've probably written, and I was thinking about that the other day, I think I've written like maybe like 90 Revocation songs or something like that. That's crazy. Somewhere, because we had an EP and like some of the records had more than 10 songs on them. So close to 90, I would say. Hot damn. And then one full length and one EP with Gargoyle. Is that right? Something to that effect? We did a, a demo and those demo songs like wound up on the full length. So oh, I would okay. say like in terms of original music, we have a we have a full length's worth of original music. Gotcha. So we're both from the Boston area. Where did you where did you grow up? I grew up in Boston. In Boston proper. Yeah, legit. Yeah, went to Boston public schools. Yeah, did the whole thing. That's cool. We um I somehow managed to never see you during that whole time we're like um, maybe around about the same age because i was pro i was started going to berkeley at or i was only there for a year but in 2004 2003 right so that would have been maybe just before you yeah right around probably the same time yeah i don't know maybe you know just like maybe you were actively avoiding me i don't fuck know <laughs> fucking cross, ships in the, the night street you see me on mass ave yeah. and you just kind of go it's the like, other oh, way God. i know it is funny that like we'd, we'd never really cross paths but i guess berkeley's i guess a big enough school and i guess it all depends on like the, the labs that you take and who'd, who'd you study with there oh i'm interviewing you now right off the bat yeah oh shit i i am going to absolutely blank on her name jazz uh guitar teacher she was amazing and i have completely forgotten her name cheryl cheryl yes uh is it bailey cheryl bailey yeah 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 
Oh, she was great. And then I got uh, some other douchebag uh, who I shall not name, um, who who kind of ruined it for me. Anyway, oh damn, it, uh, just uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of sucked. But uh, was it a jazz if guy? I'd, if I'd have stuck around, I'd probably be on the other side of these kinds of interviews instead of doing this kind of. You know what I mean? Was it a jazz guy or? Yeah, it was a jazz guy. Oh, uh, you got you got brutalized by jazz, dude. <laughs> his his name is literally a British euphemism for a penis. So if you'll. Uh, if anybody who went to Berkeley might know who this guy is. But all that to say that you went to Berkeley and you graduated. Yep. So fucking Metal Boy makes good. You Did you study jazz? Because I know you're into jazz. Mm-hmm. Did you study jazz while you were there primarily or mostly rock stuff? I mean, in terms of my private lessons, it was primarily jazz. Uh, and I took like a, like a good amount of jazz, guitar, uh, labs and stuff. My, my official major mm-hmm. was like professional music, which is like the choose your own adventure kind of smorgasbord of delights so i had some education <laughs> courses i took some uh like a lot of performance-based courses some music business-based courses so kind of like a whole bunch of different shit cool yeah just uh giving the giving the people a little bit of background on on yourself mm-hmm. um and your musical path of of education and stuff I, I feel like most of the people that i've had on here metal dudes didn't really study a whole lot all that formally. So um, I part, part of the reason that I'm excited to pick your brain is uh, because I took a more academic path and also like metal. How did you get to a point where you decided that you wanted to uh, study music formally like that? I'd always grown up like learning music. I mean, like when my mom bought me my first guitar, I had like a Yamaha Pacifica and like a, like a little crate amp or whatever. And she was like, if I'm going to buy you this guitar, like you have to like agree to take lessons. And I was like, totally cool with that. I just wanted to play guitar. I was like, really just wanted a guitar. So I was like, all right, I'll get you the guitar, but like you need to do lessons. Like you're not just going to like fuck around. So right out the gate, you know, I, I was studying uh, with this dude, Jay, great guitar teacher for me, where I like me being a beginner, he was super cool. He was open. Like he would just basically teach me songs that like I wanted to know. And I feel like after like maybe a year with him, I was just kind of practicing so much and kind of took to it like pretty well that I felt like I had the, the enough of my like enough tools to kind of like work on stuff like on my own. Uh, but he got me started. And then I was going to, I mean, as knowing Boston, maybe uh, I went to Boston Latin school. So, which is like an exam school. You had to go in. Like my parents were like super stoked for me to like get into this. Like, like I think it's like the oldest school in the country. It's like kind of like a prestigious, you know, it's, it's like a theater school for like Harvard and like, you know, MIT or, you know, lots of kind of bigger institutions, but I just did horribly there. Like, I just was like, just wanted to play guitar all the time. Like, I didn't give a shit. Like, you had to like learn like actual like Latin. And like, I just was not in that headspace. Like, I just wanted to play like rock and roll and I was getting more into like heavy metal. So I think I got like, I basically failed out of like eighth grade and I was faced with like either having to like repeat the year or there was like this like up and coming um, arts high school, like, in, you know, down the street basically called Boston Arts Academy. And, you know, I auditioned for them and they were like, your grades like aren't good, but like we'll, we'll take you into the ninth grade because like they just like needed guitar players and stuff. I'm like, all right, sick. So <laughs> it, for me, it was like a no brainer. Like I clearly wasn't thriving at the school I was in. No, no, no offense to Boston Latin School. I mean, it needed like fucking geniuses like like are produced from that school. Just like I was not interested in really 
learning <laughs> at that point. So, <laughs> but once I got to Boston Arts Academy, I really kind of was able to thrive. I mean, like I, I got to play guitar for like an hour or more, like out of my day. And I think like having my passion just so readily available there, like kind of, you know, inspired me. Like I wanted to go to school and I had some great teachers there. So that was my first introduction to jazz. I played in the the big band. I played in several guitar ensembles there. I was under the tutelage of one of my best friends now. I mean, I've, I've developed like a, a great relationship with him over the years. But back then, he was just sort of a fresh-faced college student. His name is Colin Sapp. I've given him shout-outs before, but shout-out to Colin, um, one of my best friends. And yeah, just just like an incredible musician, super passionate. It was cool because like he was really into, like he was just, first of all, he was a great teacher. Like I didn't know anything about jazz at all. And it was like, cool, like here's the, the, the guitar solo for like, and I know how to read music, like nothing. But it was like, here's the guitar solo for Wes Montgomery, four on six, or like here's the, the, the Pat Martino solo for Just Friends. And it's like, all right, you're going to play it like with three other guitar players like in unison and like oh by the way like we have like a jazz like competition like coming up at like the Heinz Convention Center in like six months so like you gotta get like your shit together so it was very much like shit. just sink or swim but he was so good at teaching and and allowed me to get like a real appreciation for the for the jazz genre um a lot of, a lot of great teachers there I mean like I said I played in the big band so that was cool like feeling like the power of like a horn section like I don't know, like it's it, it definitely like inspired me. And with everything, I kind of was able to look at it like because at the time, like I was I was like into jazz, but I mean, I was like really into metal. I was so fucking into, you know, all different types of metal. I was like discovering all these bands for the first time. I was just I was so rabid and just wanted to like consume every little piece of you know metal history or or, or just going down these little rabbit holes of like, oh, like. I'd read like a thank you section of some random like thrash band and then learn about like 10 other thrash bands from that and get their CDs and all this stuff. So it was, it was much, it was actually much harder back then. I probably sound like an old man now, but like, it wasn't like you had like Napster was like just becoming a thing, but there was no Spotify. There was none, none of that shit. It was like, if you wanted the record, like you had to go on eBay and like buy it and you had to wait for it to come in the mail. And I mean, I remember getting like X orders, though. I'm kind of jumping around here a bit, so I apologize if this is hard to follow. But um, <laughs> okay. I remember like I got X orders, the law in the mail. And I waited like so long for that CD to come. And when you finally get it, like you, you don't just like listen and skip a track. I mean, I like spent hours. Lit a candle, paid very close attention. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I, I think it maybe fostered more of an appreciation for music. But yeah, I, I, I learned not just... Well, I mean, I think you have to learn theory if you want to learn jazz. There's just there's just so much going on. There's a whole vocabulary, and you need to learn the vernacular and like the language and all all that kind of stuff. So like I uh, I got like a really great crash course in in music theory, really in depth in in, in my studies at uh, Boston Arts Academy, and from there, Boston Arts Academy was like a pilot school. So um, in a similar way that like you know a lot of people go on to different kind of institutions from from latin school that might be like you know the harvards or the you know the whatever's right like with with boston arts academy it was it was much more like it would be a feeder school for like berkeley uh or for there was a visual arts program or like so it would be like mass art and they had a dance program and they had a theater program so like any kind of like arts college like like that was kind of what boston arts academy was like set up to do was to like kind of prep you know kids for those institutions so I was able to start taking Berkeley uh, 
like summer program lessons, like I think by the time I was like like a sophomore or something like that. So like I was, I would like, they had like a Berkeley five week program, which was, you'd, you'd learn theory, you'd study privately. That was where I first started studying with Joe Stump, uh, who was, you know, just incredible. Um, you probably studied Yngwie with Junior. him at, at Berkeley a little bit. Um, just super shredder dude. Um, great dude too. It's funny now, like I've taught at Berkeley a couple of times and I'll see like Joe, like in like the hallway or whatever. And I'll be like, Oh, double D what's up? Like <laughs> he's a, he's a great Great dude and an incredible. He's uh, fucking crazy good. It's insane. It's like it looks like his hand like isn't fucking moving when he's playing. It's it's just it's it there's such like a economy of motion. It's so dialed in. Anyway. But yeah, so I, I started taking college courses or not sorry, summer program courses there. And then eventually I actually ended up taking um college courses while I was still in high school. Cause I like I knew I wanted to go to Berkeley. They had this like special kind of program kind of worked out where I think I took like some, some kind of like guitar lab there like in my in my senior year um at berkeley is kind of like a further way to like kind of get your foot in the door because that was like my number one like i don't even think i had a backup plan i was just like i'm I'm, (laughs) I'm gonna go to berkeley um and yeah then and then you know starting my journey with at berkeley uh you know it was just a super exciting time my band was we weren't signed yet but things were moving in the right direction so i i had i feel like a really good creative outlet but also I was just so entrenched in my studies and learning, you know, studying with all these great guitar players there. Studied with Brett Wilmot, studied with Bruce Saunders, um, John Baboyan, like, you know, like lots of like kind of bebop, modern jazz. And I, yeah, I just I learned, learned a shit ton there. <laughs> awesome. That's really interesting to hear, uh, especially like where that was in time-wise in the timeline of the band. Um, you know, as you're as you're going, you're studying more and more jazz and like you can. I mean, I, I, I haven't like really tracked it in terms of the influence on the in the revocation stuff. But, you know, you the, you've always been very far from straightforward, whatever, death metal, thrash, anything like that. But um, the I think more than anything else in the phrasing of your solos, I hear a lot of that kind of influence uh like we were talking about uh, uh just a, before the stream started i did a little video talking about your chromatic stuff in your solos that to me like makes it much more t- yeah tasty phrasing you know memorable uh like smooth tasty phrasing within which within metal is kind of a rarity i think in a lot of ways um in terms of how we usually go about it here on the <laughs> On the podcast, now that we've got a bit of an idea of how you came up and where you got a lot of the stuff that you got, there's really only one question on this podcast, and then all the other ones are follow-ups. And that question is, what is your typical songwriting process, and was it any different for this new album? I guess I've I've obviously learned things over the years and 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 refined my songwriting craft. So to answer your your second question, like it's kind of a yes and kind of a no, right? Like I think you get better at interfacing with technology, you know, probably maybe helps your workflow a bit, like just a a quick little, you know, if we were to go back in time, just one more, you know, for a brief moment here, like I used to record to like cassette tapes, you know what I mean? Like it would just like, I'd find like random, like blank tapes, like in the house. And like, like I didn't even realize like that I had this, like, uh, or my, my parents had this, um, you know, cassette player, but it had like a record function. So I would just like plug directly into that, like through like a metal zone pedal and just like 
record like ideas. Like I'd write a riff like with my crate amp, you know, like a mockingbird and just would just kind of like shred in the basement and then like something would pop out and I'd be like, oh, this is cool. And I would just like plug directly into this like tape machine and record like straight to that. So like very like archaic. And then I like graduated onto like, oh, garage band. This is crazy. I mean, it was quite a step up. I and mean, then I use Logic now. So I think in terms of like, yeah, like the technology I'm using and interfacing with that, like that's obviously like changed throughout the years. But, you know, the, the core thing, I think that's been the, the, the common thread ever since I like kind of first started writing music was it all starts with the riff. Where that riff comes from, I think I don't, some, you know, probably don't even know, like I might just be like messing around and something pops out to me. Sometimes it could be I'm, I'm working on a specific thing or thinking about a specific thing and something gets developed that way. Other times, like, like I said, it's just like kind of totally unconscious. I'm just kind of riffing around and like something pops out. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'll kind of explore it more. But yeah, it all, it all begins uh, with the riff and then I kind of build everything else around that. So, I mean, I can, I can walk you through my, my process if you want from there. Yeah. So, Oh, please do. That's a, a pretty common answer. It's usually the difference. The big differences usually come from what you do after you have the riff. So what's uh, take us from there. Sure. So in my cassette days, it would just be fucking random riffs and like, it would be like a pain in the ass. Like you did be like, Oh, was that on side a or side B? And I'd have like multiple tapes. Then, like, going into, like, the digital realm, I wasn't, like, much better at cataloging my ideas. So, like, I kind of would save all the riffs as, like, different files. So it'd be, like, a heavy riff or, like, thrashy riff. And then, like, six months later, you're like, what the fuck does heavy riff even mean? So you have to, like, go back and, like, listen to it anyway. So, like, what I realized is it makes more sense to catalog things by tempo. Um and and you could you could catalog things by tempo even for different projects too like so you know I might have like a revocation subfolder and like a gargoyle subfolder and then catalog things by tempo you know within that as well because obviously if I'm running for revocation it's going to be different than if I'm running for for gargoyle or for any other future project or whatever so you know whatever your main band is you know in this case we're talking about revocation I'll have all these like subfolders of tempos and it will just literally be named like riffs whatever 120 130, 140, 200, 220. And now, obviously, you have to think about, you know, the general vibe of the riff, like the aesthetic of what you're going for. So it's not like every riff in my riffs 200 folder, all it's not like they're all going to go together. But if I have 10 riffs in there, the chances that like at least like two or three of them might go together might be pretty like high, especially like, you know, when I think about certain tempos, I think about like, you know, kind of thrashy elements or death metal elements or other slower tempos. Maybe it's like a sludgy kind of thing. So like kind of piggybacking off of other ideas. Now, sometimes those riffs happen in the same session. So you'll just be kind of like on one when you'll write a riff and then like I'll call them like cousin riffs, right? Like they're like, it's not the same thing, but it's like related. I mean, you know, probably composers will call it like motivic development or something like that. But like for me, it's like, you know, it's related. They're not like direct but there's something there's there's a bridge there that can connect the two like all right this this might be a verse riff and this this could be like maybe it's not the chorus but like this this could be like a cool like solo section riff that kind of fits with the general vibe of that song i think that's the coolest thing about songwriting is because like you said everyone kind of maybe or a lot of answers might be the same thing where it starts with the riff but yeah like what what a verse to me is versus you or what a chorus to me is versus you might be like totally different so you might have 10 riffs, 
or let's say it's a, let's say it's a song. It might have six riffs, right? But how you might organize those riffs and how I might organize those riffs could be like completely different. I actually really learned that working with um, Marty Friedman when when I did a um, collaboration with him because we were just kind of going back and forth, and I had all these ideas and sort of in my mind I had an idea of how it was like laid out, but it was obviously Marty's solo product. I was just kind of hired to come on and like co-write with him. So he had the final say in terms of the structure and all that kind of stuff. And the way he, like his mind worked and laid it out was like totally different than, than how I might've laid certain sections out and and he kind of added things. And so it was, it was cool kind of seeing his musical mind work. And it's like, oh yeah, this, this feels more like a Marty Friedman song, even though maybe I wrote like the majority of the the riffs on it because it needed his solos and his signature kind of touch in terms of organizing the ideas so just from an organizational standpoint that can that can maybe sometimes be just as much uh someone's style as the riffs themselves which is kind of interesting to think about but yeah i'll, I'll kind of go in and, and i'll and i'll listen through and i'll think like okay cool like this is at you know the, the, these three riffs out of these 10 all kind of fit together in some way and that's where like some of the fun shit happens because maybe the other seven riffs Maybe those, maybe maybe magically, those all fit together, and then boom, I've got like two songs, right? Like one is these three riffs here that I need to add more to, and then this other one is like almost like basically done. Maybe I wrote a bunch of those riffs all in the same session, and I was just like on one at that point, and it just naturally kind of flowed together, or just by luck of the draw, they just happen to fit together. Or maybe it's three songs, right? Maybe it's it's you know three, three, and four, and I got to add just a little bit more to that one. And then I got two songs that are basically like half completed. But I guess the the idea is like once you start to kind of coalesce your ideas and like kind of coagulate, like that just kind of inspires me to like want to finish things up. Or it, it's like this weird like Rubik's Cube that I need to solve, right? Like once like I'm like tracking the scent of something, like I want to like I can get kind of like obsessive about it like until that song is like that I, I need the puzzle to be like complete, which – Sometimes always doesn't work. You can't rush that either. Like I've had riffs that have just been sitting for, at this point, I've, I've used all my back catalog material, but like there, there was riffs that I had for like years that I wrote, like some of the very fucking first shit I've ever written that I still thought was cool. And then you randomly revisit it. That was actually the, the intro riff of um, the exaltation that also happens to have Marty Friedman on, on it. That first riff I had like forever. Um, and it just never found like the right home. And then finally, like I came up with like one other idea that was like, I, th- I think that'll fit with that. And it's like this key that unlocks this whole thing. And then once you get two, then the ball starts rolling. It's almost like, uh, writing like a, like a paper, like for, you know, if you're in high school or if you're in college or whatever, like, I don't know about you, but like for me, like the first paragraphs always the hardest and then like once you kind of write that first paragraph you're like oh okay and then you can you can start to sort of flow after that so it's getting uh, getting over that initial hump and then as soon as there's two or three riffs there it's like you just going because then you can kind of do spin-offs of like each individual riff and see what happens or maybe you, you you come up with some wild card ideas that add like a different element to the song that might really be needed so that's sort of the, the kind of general process um, from there in terms of like organizing those initial ideas. And of course, songs don't need to be in the same tempo, right? Um, which we can talk about, you know, in, in a little bit if, if you want, or as like a follow-up question. But, you know, I think it's great to have like tempo changes in songs. I like to have like a, like a general overarching 
tempo. I mean, I think for some bands, they make it work where it's very an erratic style. It's like certain death metal bands, like every riff changes tempo and it's like nothing really repeats. And it's just like just a fucking brutal like onslaught. And then the song is what the song is. Uh, but for, for for me, I like to kind of, you know, think about maybe like themes and overarching tempos, but it certainly doesn't have to be one tempo the whole way through. I mean, we've we've definitely done you know, tempo changes in songs to to add a different dynamic to that. So it's not like I can only pull from this riffs 200 folder. I might have out of those three riffs that are in the 200 folder, there might be another riff that's in the 150 folder that for whatever reason, to my ear, fits the general vibe and aesthetic of what's happening there and again that's where your voice your style uh comes through like being able to make those stylistic choices being able to say this fits with that even though maybe to someone else they would never even think to put those things together so once you've got these kind of like couple riffs that you think fit together really well and you're starting to go after it you're getting that like you're saying you got that first paragraph of your essay and you're inspired now you're stoked do you generally structure the whole thing out before you bring it to the band are you writing the lion's share of it or do you take it and jam it with with the other guys at any point before you've got the full idea or how does that generally work sure uh, I generally like to bring sort of full ideas to the band, like full, full-ish songs. That way, kind of people can s- sort of see the overarching vision. Because sometimes, it's like if you know in your head something's going to change anyway, you bring something in, and like maybe if it doesn't feel right, people start second guessing like the song, like overall. You know what I mean? It's like no, that's it's going to make sense. I just need to like change this part or whatever. But, you know, certainly songs have been refined. I've brought songs in that I've taken back and changed around because I wasn't happy with them. But generally, I like to kind of give a, a, a sort of close-ish to finished product so that the guys can kind of wrap their heads around it and like kind of get an understanding for it. But like I said, I'll, I'll certainly change things around uh, if I feel the need to. Um, and, you know, I'll listen to the feedback from the other dudes too. Like, um, you know, there's been instances where I've thought something was sick and then just like other dudes were like, eh, you know, maybe we could come up with something better there. Um, but it's also happened the opposite way where like I second guessed a riff. I remember on like on Vanitas, um, the chorus riff of that. I really liked it. And for whatever reason, I just like maybe I listened to it too much. And I'm like, is this actually good? And I think I took it out and replaced it with something else. And Brett was like, yo, that's the best part of the song. Like, what are you what are you doing? Like, you got to put that back in. <laughs> I'm like, all right. All right, cool. So, you know, it can work both ways. Luckily, like, I feel like I've got a really great musical connection with all the dudes in the band. And um, everyone knows where we're coming from. So that's that's nice. It feels like a, a good it allows me to to be creative and like let my voice come through. They get, they give me that space and that opportunity to do that, which is nice. There are exceptions to that. So for example, like if, if we're jamming at the rehearsal space, like before like a gig and I just like happen to have a riff that I've been working on and I'm like really stoked. Like for me, it's just like, I can't help it. I want to share it. I want to like jam it out. Even if we're not going to play it for like a year, like I've, I've done that where I've, I've brought shit in and like just, you know, jammed it with just Ash or whatever, like on drums and like, you know, I'll, I'll play through and we'll get some ideas going. And for me, like, I, I guess I have a pretty good musical memory. Like I can just like, like remember shit and I can, I can envision drum beats over things like pretty much instantaneously. So like, it might be a situation where like eight months later, I'll be like, I oh, remember that, remember that riff we jammed on like, you know, a year ago. And it'll be like, I, 
I think so, you know, and like I'll like play it for him and he'll kind of I'm like, no, you played this drum beat over that. And then like it'll kind of jog his memory and I'm like, oh, right, right, right. We we worked that out. So I'm like, okay, cool. Here's like give me those sticks. Let me show you what it was. Right. <laughs> but like oh, no. so in moments like that, I, I, I like to jam it just to kind of give the guys like a taste of the material, maybe like where my head's at. And it's just fun. Like, you know, when you're when you're doing like a rehearsal for like a bunch of songs you've played before. Like it's it's always fun getting in the room jamming songs with dudes, but like to me, there's nothing like playing a, a riff for like the very first time. Like that just never gets old. It's 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 what keeps me going. Like just hearing something in your head and then like hearing it like get fleshed out in the room, and you know maybe Brett does a cool little bass fill or like Ash adds like this like little rip and drum fill, something that I like wouldn't have thought of, and then it's like oh shit, this is like starting to come to life now, and it's like I had this vision in my head, and now. Now it's out there and it's other pieces are being added that like really make it pop in a, in a, in a different way or, or just like solidify it as like, and then other times it doesn't work, you know, so that's also good to like jam things out too, because, you know, you don't want to spend all this time writing a song based off of this like one riff. And then if, and if it doesn't work or doesn't feel right for everybody, then it's like, all right, well, I just did this whole thing based around this one idea, you know? Was that a waste of time? I feel like it's never a waste of time because if anything, you just get better at your, your songwriting craft and you have to try new things and it's totally okay to to, to fail. Because, um, you know, who knows, one, maybe one piece of a riff might kind of come back. Like maybe the, maybe the idea, like the general concept is there. Like maybe it's a rhythmic thing. Like, and like, the, like the rhythm is really good, but just like the note choices for that rhythm like aren't the right thing for that or, or or vice versa like you know like the notes are cool but like that dotted quarter note just needs to be a half note and then all of a sudden it like fits better i, I will bring things into jam cool when you're working them out on your own in logic uh like you said you're using how uh in depth do you demo them are you like programming drums are you layering like writing bass lines and stuff or is it do you get like a just a skeleton kind of thing. Um, I never programmed drums. Well, actually, I, d I did it for the Marty Friedman thing just to kind of like, because that was more his thing. And I wanted to like really present, like mm -hmm. put my best foot forward in terms of like the idea. But I mean, I've known Ash for so long and like, like it really, you know, any drummer that I've worked with, like I just kind of like beatbox like the drum ideas to dudes. Like mm -hmm. I've been told I can speak drums very well. <laughs> so... Uh, and, and I have the rhythmic knowledge to, you know, describe, you know, oh, that's, you know, the and of three or something like that, you know, so I can, I'm not just like mumbling things of people like I can be like, no, this is a triplet here and that's a 16th note or, or you know, this coming in on the, this, the, the one E and ah uh of four. You've got the vocabulary, but do drummers understand you? Because uh -uh. <laughs> if you know, a lot of drummers don't know that. Right, I bet, right. I bet Ash does. He's, he seems like a guy who knows his shit. But <laughs> Luckily, Ash is you know really versed in that stuff and is a master of his craft, so I can discuss those types of things with him. But it, but it is interesting. Like Dudes hear things differently sometimes. Like on the song Theater of Horror, the, the intro riff, is that's a pickup note. So like I would like send out just the riffs, Cause like I said, I don't, I don't, I have the ideas in my mind and I prefer like doing it like kind of like an old school way. Like, I mean, I used to rehearse weekly back when I lived in Boston, but now, you know, like when the band was based in Boston, but now we're all kind of spread out. So we don't have the luxury of getting, I mean, our drummer lives in Vancouver. Right. So like, I gotta like 
you know, go in and like, uh, you know, Skype or Zoom or whatever and kind of just describe this stuff. But I would rather not like, it feels a little bit too meticulous to like program like the whole thing. Like I'd, I'd rather just like record the riffs. Sometimes like sometimes I'll throw bass on there as well. Uh, like like maybe like a general loose idea that we can kind of like fill in the, the more ornate details of like at a later time. But the general kind of gist of like the root notes or something like that and not really like worry about lining up too much with like the, the, the rhythmic intricacies. Because a lot of that stuff like also gets fleshed out in the room. Like Brett's always like listening to like what the kick drum does or something like that. And like, oh, if, if he's doing like a like a stab here in the kick drum, I want to like try to accent that like on the bass somehow. It depends on the riff, of course. But um so yeah, I'll just I'll like hop on Skype, like here's the riffs, they'll sit with them, Ash will play me his ideas, or I'll give him my ideas first and just kind of like, yeah, this is a th- and, and some of the shit like I don't even need to like beatbox out. Like it'll it'll just be literally like, okay, that's a thrash beat. Like this is like a like you know, like a stomp, you know, with like on the, the snare on every quarter note. This is a halftime beat, you know, you're just gonna kinda hit the three. So it's like shit like that that like Ash can certainly pick up like that. But other other more complex things are like how I'm hearing shit. Like there was there was an instance where, like I said, with the theater of horror riff, I sent that out to him. And it's a pickup. It's one, two, three, da, 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 da. So it like it's coming in on the four. So he heard it as like the one, I think. So like where the snare placement was, it was like fucking with my head, like when he sent the thing back. I'm like, this sounds really weird to me. It's like technically like on, but like the whole riff just kind of sounded like flipped around or whatever so how to kind of go back in and then you have to sort of like retrain someone's brain like how to like hear something because if you're hearing something it's like um the intro to holy wars right megadeth Mm -hmm. right like you know it's it's one two three right it's coming in on the upbeat but for the longest time i always heard it like one two three so i always heard that as the downbeat and then like eventually like heard it as like in context of the riff that comes later as a pickup note. Now, I don't know, like, how, like the, the dudes in Megadeth, how they write, you know, maybe that was like they all collectively just always knew it as that, you know, because of a count off in the practice room or whatever. But just me as a fan hearing something with no context whatsoever, and, you know, you might be inclined to feel that on the downbeat or whatever. So it can kind of play tricks on your ears with, with, with certain things like that in terms of how you're feeling something. But for the most part, like me and Ash, like click really well on things and um, we're on the same page. So I never feel like the need to micromanage him and like, you know, write everything out uh, from, a, from a drum program. I think probably some people like to do that. Maybe it's like, you know, I don't know, therapeutic or something. But for me, it just is like <laughs> it feels like tedious and I'd it's rather like tedious. It feels more organic when I can like talk to someone, even if it's over something like a digital medium like Skype or Zoom, like it reminds me of like being in the room coming up with a riff like on the spot or 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 writing it like a week before getting super excited and be like oh yeah I want the drums to go like this and I don't know it just it just feels like you're kind of like nerding out on like like cuz I love drums like I wish I like I wish I had like a drum kit and I could like actually like practice and stuff but um yeah I I I love having like an idea in my head and I can like bring it to like someone that's like a, just a total master of execution like ash and sometimes i'll come up with like really hard shit like you know like a thrash beat or a blast beat is is pretty straightforward of course you can make them complex with different rhythmic things and the kick drum or whatever but um 
you know, sometimes I'll hit them with the like with really weird, like, oh yeah, this is a part in five, and I'm picturing like a really active, like hi-hat, like groove, like because I, I grew up listening to like you know, spastic ink and like shit like that, and like those like you know, Bobby Jarzombek like crazy mm-hmm. beats where he's like you know, utilizing every single part of the kit or or even like things like Gene Hoagland's done on like some of those death records where it's like it's like a groove, but he's like adding in like a weird accent on like the ride or something. Shit that you like obviously need to like sit down and like work out is uh it's kind of fun to like throw that shit at, you know, like Ash like in the space and just kind of like see him like like work it out like in real time and he'll be like, okay, give me a minute and he'll like kind of play it and like play it slow. And I, I find that part of the process like to be to be fascinating. At what point do you add the vocals in? Are you thinking about them as you're writing the riffs? Actually, we had a we had a question from the uh, uh, in the chat uh, related to this, so I'm going to shout out Earth to Sean, who says, "Has there been any specific focus on developing vocals with Revocation?" As an avid fan, I notice that's one thing that has evolved immensely. So, yeah, in both of those questions about vocals, like. How do they fit in? Yeah, uh, I think I've gotten better at, uh, as a lyricist. I think I've gotten better as a vo- vocalist, like in terms of my performance. I think I've gotten better at coming up with uh, just, just you know interesting sort of rhythmic lines. You know, my, my I guess we'll call it phrasing, right? I think I've maybe come in, come into my own more. Like when you're, it's it's just like any band, like you know, especially when you're when you're a, when you need to kind of split duties between vocals and um, and guitar. As I've progressed and as the band's progressed and kind of come into its own and I've and I've kind of kind of embraced the front man role more and I've been kind of inspired to sort of take on that role. I think I've naturally just thought more about the vocals, about the vocal delivery. And yeah, like I mean, we spend so much time trying to be creative with the music. Like obviously, like we we've never wanted the vocals to be an afterthought, but uh I think I've just gotten better at uh, yeah, coming up with cool patterns, things I haven't done before. Um, I mean, the, the 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 new single "Diabolical Majesty" I'm particularly proud of. I think like the, the chorus has got some cool, you know, like rhythmic phrases to it that like kind of go over the bar line a little bit, and like ha- they have a cool flow. So, um, but you know, you still want to keep it heavy sometimes and like straightforward uh, as well. But as far as like I, I need the music to be done in order to start like working on the, the like I've never come up with like a vocal pattern first or anything like that and like written a riff around that like that's like never happened to me I've I've come up with like rhythms for riffs that when I didn't have a guitar around and I was like walking down the street and like just like pull my phone out and like do a voice memo really quick I've done that where I like speak the 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 rhythm of the riff into the phone uh, and then come back and figure out whatever that translates to um, later on down the line. But yeah, I've never written like vocals first. I mean, even from a lyrical, I'll have, what I will have is I'll have song titles. So I've got like a shit ton of like song titles, like in like a saved in like a note in my phone. And like, I'll let those kind of maybe like inform like a general lyrical concept from there. But yeah, I need to have the music written. And then that way I can just start to hear, hear shit. Just, just like I would hear like a like a drum beat or, or a bass line or whatever, like I need to have that music there to like inspire me to start like writing vocals. And then it's like once I start on the vocals and, and the lyrics, like, again, that's another puzzle that needs to be solved. I mean, when I was, you know, maybe this is pivoting into like the recording process 
too soon. I don't know if you're going to talk about that at all, but um, for Nether Heaven. But when I was, because I engineered everything myself besides the drums, I kind of took a little bit of a different approach to it where like, you know, some of the stuff I was sort of writing like in the studio, because like there was no clock, you know, I wasn't like on someone else's time. It was all just my thing. So I'm like, let me use the the energy and inspiration of being in the studio to like help push me in different directions. So, I mean, I would wake up, I, 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 I it was a lot of work, but I'll, I'll always look back super fondly on the, on this moment, I think, for the rest of my life. But I recorded the whole record at my bass player's um, place um, in Virginia. And he's got, like, you know, a backyard. And it's, you know, it's chill. Like, I would just, like, wake up, like, have a coffee. And I would just, like, do laps in his backyard. I mean, I probably look like a fucking crazy person. But I was just, like, <laughs> working on, like, vocal patterns and like lyrics and like you know changing things around and like i just like went from like song to song to song and like sometimes multiple songs like i'd i'd, I'd get like you know like a a verse and a and a half of lyrics for one song and then feel like maybe i hit like a little bit of a creative wall and then like pivot to this other thing and like oh i got that bridge i got to finish up lyrically and i was just like every day just like on it you know same way of how i came up with the album title you know, it was just like every day was like thinking about these different combinations of words or different, uh, you know, like like all these different things uh, that like just were at the forefront of my mind kind of like all at once. It's like I got to track the record. I got to do the, you know, I didn't even write any of the solos yet. Like normally I write the solos like, you know, like a month in advance too. But this was like, well, I'm just going to like do them like in the studio and kind of like, you know, like kind of pre-pro it out for like, like almost like in real time like okay like here's a solo like pre-pro it out like feel good with it feel confident with it and then like track it so i know i don't i think i jumped around there a whole bunch but but yeah that's yeah yeah no this is all gold man i uh is there usually do you wait for the complete song structure to be done or do you have most uh, like uh maybe just a verse or and a chorus before you start writing the the vocals i mean I, I, I mean, it sounds like, like in this case, you if you're in the studio already, you're you probably got most of it. But yeah, I, I wait till the end. Um, I kind of need to, I think, you know, because like I, I need to let the music kind of speak to me and inspire me and like almost like inform which way I should go. Because I can't just like even though I have like a bunch of song titles, like it's weird. Like I get and again, this goes into like where your own personal taste comes in. But like. You know, in theory, if you've got 10 songs and and none of them have lyrics, in theory, if you have 10 song titles, any one of those song titles could fit with any one of those songs, right? But for me, that's just, like, not the case. Like, when I look at, you know, the new, like, like, Diabolical Majesty, that's that song. Like, I knew, like, yeah, that fits for that. It doesn't fit for anything else like galleries of morbid artistry that one fit exactly for that song and we even even try to be like creative with the with the song titles like i was having trouble like coming up with the with the song title for track two just because it had like it was it was fucking heavy but like it went in like some different directions and i wasn't sure like what would encapsulate it best um but then you know when i came up with the title lessons in occult theft it just was like oh that's like that's that song right there so yeah, the music needs to inform me bef- before I think I start writing the lyrics. I need to be, like, inspired to, like, pick up the pen. Because I'm not, like, I don't just, like, write lyrics uh, in general. Like, I, I've, I've got so many projects going on. Like, I'd, I'd rather be honing my craft at 
at guitar. Like I don't, I don't keep like a journal or like a diary or anything like that. <laughs> it's more like I'll, I'll, I'll keep track of song titles in my mind, you know, but I think I'd rather spend that time like, like reading someone else's writing and getting like inspiration, like from there for like, to this be is the diary later. of Dave Davidson. Yeah. Dear diary. Today I wrote a song about burning lots of churches to the ground. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> no, that's uh that's all that's this is what I'm looking for, man. Like no stone unturned. This is all all very cool cuz like like I said, like I often assume that people do it this do it the same way. Everyone's just got a notes app full of lyrics, lyric ideas that they write or whatever. Um, but uh, a lot of people wait till the till the very end. Uh, we've had people on here saying they write the lyrics in the studio as they're like record, like right before they're tracking it, which to me is insane, like right. cr- like crazy pants. But like, I mean, if you got the time and you can do it, sometimes it works. I, you know, whatever your process is, some people need that urgency or whatever. But so it sounds like you're waiting to get the inspiration from the full song, pairing it up with a with a title that inspires you, that matches the feeling of it. That's cool. Um, does that ever become a problem when it's time to play them and sing them at the same time? That's the thing that w- would worry me. Yeah, that is always a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think I've just embraced like the chaos with that and i'm like you know yeah no it definitely is a concern (laughs) when i'm doing it like i'm like am i gonna be able to sing this like i don't even know but like i guess you just practice slowly like really like kind of work it out but there's definitely parts of songs where i've like kicked myself afterwards i'm like why like why did i write like (laughs) such a contrary like vocal rhythm to like what they get like it sounds cool but that's at the end of the day it's like it like does it sound cool does it like move me like consequences be damned like i'll 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 figure it out when i get to it you know or i'll make someone else play the harder part and i'll play like the easier (laughs) part like there's i mean but that's part of like like composing too like on uh on uh, a dead ode to the grave that's just the first song that comes to my mind but like the chorus is like a crazy arpeggio thing and like you know i wanted to have like beefy chords like underneath it to like just like to fit like sonically not even thinking like oh i'll play the easy part um but like i wanted to have that like beefiness underneath underneath the arpeggio to like fill out the sound and like as i'm like playing the arpeggios in the studio i'm like yeah i, I know which part like i'm gonna play <laughs> live and sing Diabolical Majesty has some crazy lead parts going on during the chorus, or like it's like a riffy, fast thing. Yeah, well, well, one guitar is like kind of like a DBD, like which I feel like is like I can maybe just go a little bit more autopilot on that. It's it, but yeah. even like the other part, I don't think it's that hard to sing. It's it's an endurance test because it's just trem picking the whole time. But I find like like singing over trem picking isn't like really hard because it's you're just kind of going through it's it's more like if you've got like a like a weird rhythm in the guitar where there's syncopation or something like that where where it's more difficult or or the vocals are doing something different but if if you are just kind of like cranking along with like a you know whatever 16 note triplet whatever like the the trend pick ends up working out to at that particular tempo um mm-hmm. it's it's difficult from an endurance standpoint but not necessarily from like a rhythmic standpoint, I've found it's it's more like those like really ornate like things like 
because if you're thinking about trend picking, generally it's like either like a washy chord that you're doing, like kind of maybe like a black metal style kind of riff, or it's like a single note that you're kind of moving from one, you know, one section to another. Like in the case of Diabolical, like I am doing arpeggios, but the the, the trend pick is like, you know, it's not like every single note is a like, or every single rhythmic value is like a different note. Like I'm on the same note for like, like a beat at a time before I kind of right. move. So it's like a little bit easier to kind of tackle. Yeah, but I think I'm probably going to play like crazy. the DBD part anyway, just I think because rhythmically it'll, I don't know, just kind of picturing play it live. Like that's another part about composing though too. Like I actually sometimes don't know what I'm going to do live, like until like we actually start like rehearsing like in a room. Yeah. I'm sure there are songs that you've maybe never even stuff you've recorded and maybe never even had to play live. Right. Like so that so you're like, well, I'll I'll put in the time when cross that bridge when we get to it. Right, right. Yeah, who knows? Are we even going to play the song live, right? You know, it's like it's a cool song on the record, but like maybe it won't translate well live. Um, you never know. Well, this sort of begs uh, a question that actually someone in the chat, um same guy uh Earth Earth to Sean, thank you for your donation and your question. Um, he, he asks, will you guys most likely continue as a trio with a fill-in for live performance, or are you seeking another guitarist? My, my question is that, but for the songwriting part, um, do you... Uh, are this is your first one as a trio in a while. Yeah. Are you thinking, are you still thinking in terms of writing for two guitars when you're writing these? Obviously you recorded two guitar parts, but when you're like, are you considering that or what's the deal? What's yeah, oh, the deal with the other guitar player situation? I think is the, is the long, short version. Yeah. Right now we've got a, a fantastic touring guitar player, Noah, super shredder. Anyone that saw us on the cannibal tour, saw him there. We're not in a rush to like confirm like an official, member or anything like that at this time um but noah's going to be doing he's doing the australian tour that we got coming up he's got the he's on the u.s tour that we got coming up and and he's working out great so far so um he, he's definitely gonna be with us like for the foreseeable future we just don't want to you know rush into anything as far as writing goes yeah yeah i'm a hundred percent i'm thinking about writing for two guitar players i mean there's i mean you've heard the record there's there's harmonies like all over the fucking place on the on the new album so i always knew that we weren't going to go back to a three piece, even though we lost Dan. Um, so I, you know, I think at the time we didn't have Noah, like maybe he was like, you know, on our radar, but like it wasn't like, like I was just focused on because we had people hitting us up like, oh, I want to audition this and that. I'm like, I got to record this record. Like I'm not even thinking about, and it was still like the pandemic too. I'm like, I don't even know when we're going to go on tour. So like, let me just record this. I knew I was when the time came, we would find someone. But yeah, it's 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 not like I was thinking, oh, we're a, th a trio now. Like I have to like write accordingly for for that. I think we're we're just like a two guitar band. Oh, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe one. You know, for nostalgic purposes, we'll go back to a three piece. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I think it just sounds for for the style that we have writing. Um, with two guitars just sort of makes more sense. I mean, even like every song has a solo and like almost every solo we have has like rhythm guitar players, you know, or rhythm guitar playing, I should say, like behind it. So, you know, that that sonically, I think it just fills out the space a little bit more. It just fucking sounds heavier too. I've always like kind of enjoyed the pulling the rug when it's just guitar over bass, but at the same time, like that's probably because I'm a guitar player and I want to hear really what's going on. Right. <laughs> and right. like the average person will pro probably will, it'll hit harder when that's you know when it's got a, a more full 
uh, thing. Yeah, like a, a a full foundation with the rhythm guitar and everything does sound better, right. really. Yeah, I mean, even on old Revocation songs that that had bass underneath when we were trio style, live like we'll have like our you know in this case Noah like like I'll work out like some kind of like riff that's like either exactly what the bass is doing or kind of complementary to it to like to fill it out. So we're actually like adding guitars back in for the live. But I think it's cool when bands do different shit live too. You know, I mean, that's kind of like the whole, I mean, you can always listen to the exact version of the record. I mean, we try to get it as close as possible, but we'll do different things that are like live specific. Like this is, I guess it kind of fits into like the songwriting process. It's like more like how songs translate live, but like we'll, we'll come up with like intros or, you know, we'll do different things that like weren't on the record. Like on, like on, on in the Vancouver show, we, we did uh, Crumbling Imperium, which was off of Great Is Our Sin. And on the record, it just like kicks right in. And, you know, thinking live, like, okay, we got like, you know, over an hour of music to play. Like, how can we do different things and like add to the set? And I just kind of came up with the idea, like, you know, it was like we had three days of rehearsal and then the show or something like that. And like on the third day, I was like, what if I just like take this like lead guitar uh, line, Crumbling Imperium, that's like, it's basically just like a, I don't know, we'll call it like a death metal thunderstruck or something like that. You know, like <laughs> it's just like, you know, kind of really fast, like pull offs and like, you know, on the D string, like moving it around to different notes. It's like, what if I just like played that like kind of solo and like, like went through like with like, you know, an effect on it or whatever. And like, can it give it this like, you know, atmospheric kind of sound? And then once it gets around the full cycle, boom, then we kick in with like the whole band. Uh, and we did it and I was like, oh, this is sick. And then you're like, fuck, I wish that was on the record. <laughs> but that's kind of the cool thing about, about live and, and about having a back catalog. You know, you can go in and, 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 and change these songs up like ever so slightly or add little intros or outros to things. It could be on a live album that you could, now you've got a really good reason to do it. <laughs> right, right, right. Or, or on um, That Which Consumes All Things. Uh, I think we started doing it when we were on tour with Killswitch Engage uh, in Europe. I think that was the first tour we started on, but it, it might have been before then. But I don't know. I just had the idea, like, because the ending outro is like super heavy, but it's still like, it's not, it's not like super fast, but it's not like super slow either. It's like kind of more of like a mid tempo kind of banger like riff. And I was like, oh, like, what if we just like get like super ignorant with it and just like slow it down and like just like go like full like caveman style on it mm -hmm. and. uh yeah, we did that on like the the Cannibal tour and just like really leaned in, like just super slow. Like Ash is like doing like super fast kicks underneath. We even changed it up a couple times since we first introduced the idea. So like it obviously had some staying power and like we like morphed it even more. Uh, but now again, I'm like, fuck, I wish that was on the record. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like I think of like old ass bands, like classic rock bands who would write these songs definitely nothing nearly as complex as any of the things that we're talking about but they'd take them on the road for like two years before they ever got a chance to record and by that time they'd worked all that shit out they'd done all the tried all those things and then wind up with that on the record and it, i i think that's kind of a cool thing cool way to do it that like nobody really has any reason to do it like that anymore um it, like i don't think there's much else about doing it that way that has value but that specific thing that you're talking about like working shit out getting to try it live before you have to record it that's uh that does have that kind of cool benefit yeah my my only thing to that um and i think maybe the reason like well a reason we don't do it i can't speak for everybody but i would assume other people have the same mentality is 
you know, you want to put the best version of a song forward. And if it could really just live in that one moment that night, I'd be okay with it. But you play a new song, people are going to film it. Their phones out. You've already spoiled the surprise. You know what I mean? So, and then there's just there's you know YouTube videos of it. So like what you know what you're trying to do, it's almost like a, you know like a stand up comic like working out material like in smaller clubs before they take it you know on the road and they see what works, see what doesn't. But yeah, it's yeah, it's one of those things where. I would just be nervous that it would just immediately get out there and then everyone's hearing this like shitty cell phone quality video footage of something and you've kind of blown the the the, the surprise the debut if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sucks. It's a it's a weird time that we're in for that kind of a thing. Like if you do something publicly and you're any kind of a public figure it will probably be documented and spread around and you know you've got a lot of fans waiting for new material so they're hungry for that kind of thing and they'll they'll eat up a cell phone <laughs> video of you guys playing it live right and then, and then like, people will comment on it and be like this sucks because it like sounds bad but they don't you know they don't even like are thinking <laughs> yeah. like oh it's good you're just you're hearing of you know a, a flip phone like a razor flip phone version of it uh but what can you do well let's talk about some lyrics Let's talk about the lyrics to the first single that you guys dropped, Diabolical Majesty. What is the song about? And how did that how did it how did you come to how the lyrics are? So the 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 album in general like as a concept, I, I've been liking doing kind of loose concepts for, uh, on our records for a little bit, like you know, Great Is Our Sin, I feel like had like a common thread that carried through outer one certainly had that cosmic horror lovecraftian kind of theme and the and the lyrics and the artwork so um you know i remember like bef even before like we had some of the songs written i was like i think i want to go to hell on the new record you know just, <laughs> i like the idea of like we went to outer space now we're, now we're going to go to hell so i wanted to have some hellish themes and i think you can do a lot with that concept for sure um you know whether it's just kind of your occult demonic kind of imagery that fits so well to match the the the, the demonic essence of the, the music or things that might have more of like a modern day kind of political commentary element to them so that kind of is what uh i guess diabolical majesty sort of lives in both those realms right it's guys like very kind of demonic lyrical imagery but underneath that is a uh a little bit of political commentary it's you know it's essentially about the the clash between satanic temple and um you know religious leaning politicians in different areas uh you know essentially they're they're sort of trolling the religious right but i think it's deeper than that and it really talks about um you know like free speech and if you're going to have separation of church and state in this country you know you can't put up like the statue of the 10 commandments on government property and then because then you open it up to like okay you can either have it all or you can't have any but you can't pick and choose and just say one because then it looks like you know we don't have a separation of church and state so i think that's kind of what they're getting at and you know for some people it might be like oh well, it's just a statue who gives a shit but you know it you know, a bit of a slippery slope there towards like, uh, you know, you know, putting people in power that might, you know, really affect, uh, you know, how how laws are governed in this country. So uh, I think it's definitely important uh, to, you know, to address certain issues with your lyrics and to think about like a bigger picture type of thing. Uh, so as much as I love writing in a, in a more fantasy kind of element, I think it's also important to, uh, you know, discuss things that are happening in real time 
in, in, in politics or it could be in your personal life or whatever. But like that to me was something that was sort of inspiring. I felt the need to discuss it and it felt very relevant to the times today, especially given I'm not going to turn this into a political rant, you know, because we're just kind of talking about songs and stuff. But given <laughs> certain things that have transpired, you know, in the past like, couple of years here, it c- certainly seems like uh, even like as society becomes more secular, it seems like power is being more consolidated, uh, you know, with people of more of a religious sort of mindset. And, you know, I think all music that I like is protest music in some way, you know, whether it's you know metal or jazz or punk. I mean, even, you know, classical hip hop, you know, like I think, you know, speaking truth to power is important. And uh, yeah, that was sort of my my general inspiration for that. But I didn't want to be like super heavy handed with it either where it's like it's like two on the nose. I mean, I'm happy to to discuss the the lyrical inspiration, but I I also want people to kind of read the lyrics and like have it feel maybe a little bit more like poetic or whatever and and less like, you know, I'm not trying to like necessarily shove like a ideology down anyone's throat either. I want it to be like have that metal feel like even <laughs> even if you don't give a shit about politics like at all, like I want the lyrics to like maybe still like hit you in like in a certain way. Yeah. I, well, the thing that you said about like it being like political or personal or whatever like i think there's a point at which there's a, an immense crossover because it could very quickly become personal if it's um an issue of uh personal freedoms and and liberties and uh and your ability to exist in a society and you know it it's it's personal it already has become personal for about you know half the country right now with what just happened in the supreme court you know so and you can talk about big things. That's the point of art to make make some kind of a statement, even if it's not super specifically political or or personal or whatever. Like it can be personal without it being about your relationship, you know, with your right. significant other or whatever. Right, right. And I I, I heard a quote from a, a, a really fantastic guitar player that I'm a big fan of. Um, his name's Near Felder. And he said, uh, all music is political. Because you know, a lot of people said, like, oh, keep politics out of music or whatever. And he said, all music is political. You know, we, we, um, there's certain societies out there that, like, you know, you, you can't freely express yourself. You know, you can't write certain music that you want to write in different, different areas. And you can't, like, you know, you're going to receive, like, a ton of backlash or, or whatever. So, like, you know, I think all art has an inherently political slant to it. You know, when, if you really get down to, like, the... The nitty gritty of it. Otherwise, it's just like, you know, fluff. Like, you know, it's just purely for <laughs> entertainment value and that's it. And there's no, you know, maybe the art side of it kind of it, it isn't there. And it's, but, but I want my music to like, like music inherently is entertaining, but like I, I want it to have a deeper level to it. You know, I, I mean, I, I want it to kind of move me in different things. Like I think some, like good art should confront the listener in different ways and make you think about things in like a different light. And certainly like as a kid growing up, like reading lyrics of some of my favorite bands, like coming out of like Catholic school, right? Like having that, that mental programming there for like a while, like, you know, sort of, you know, believing in like, you know, God and like all these things. Cause like, that's what you kind of grew up like learning about. And then like, you know, you kind of go into the dark side a little bit, like learn, uh, you know, like a little bit more, you have more life experience. And then you like see people like talking about these things. And it's like, oh, like these are some concepts that I've like maybe been wrestling with like myself. And here is like someone like just like fully like putting it out there. And like, you know, this guy didn't like burst into flames or whatever, get like struck by lightning, like kind of makes you, you know, call into question some of your ideologies. And, you know, I think it's good to kind of like check yourself from time to time and, you know, learn, learn new things. And I think art is a good way of, uh, you know, 
exposing yourself to different kind of ideologies that might challenge your preconceived notions of something. I think it was Bertolt Brecht that said like, you know, um, cause the, the, normally people say like art is a mirror that reflects society. Right. But he said, art is not a mirror that reflects society. It's a hammer to which you shape society. So I always thought that was kind of cool. I like that a lot better. <laughs> Who doesn't like smashing shit? It's the hammer that smashes the mirror. The mirror is actually something else. Let's not get too deep here. <laughs> but that's good stuff. Um, in that sort of in, in that same vein, I want to talk about anything that maybe you that inspired you uh, musically and lyrically as you were making this album? Anything that you were listening to that uh, that sent things in a new direction or gave you some cool ideas or anything while you were writing this stuff? Oh, man, yeah. I listened to, you know, just so much shit. Like, I mean, everything from jazz to death metal to classical music. Like, it's hard to uh, pinpoint, like, one specific thing. I mean, sometimes I'll go the complete, like, opposite way, when I'm working on something and like, you know, you like need like a palate cleanser. I mean, like, like all I listened to like over like the summer while I was recording the the record was like Cobra Man uh, and like Donnie Benet. I think like that was just like, I was just bumping that shit. Like what are, what are those? Tell us. A uh, Cobra Man is sick. Um, the song Heat Wave, that's actually like why I named like the, the studio that, you know, Brett's home studio, like Heat Wave recordings was because of that song. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just like a great, just check it out. Just listen to the Cobra Man Heat Wave. It's like poppy, like, you know, maybe like, like there, there's keyboards, like there, it depends on like what you're listening to. Some of the shit sounds like disco-y. Some of the shit sounds like, like a weird, like bizarro Judas Priest song. They're just like a really like fun band. I think they're like going on tour right now. Um, so anyway, like, yeah, shout out to Cobra Man. Cool. Uh, and then Donnie Benet is just like, uh, what can I say about Donnie Benet? He's, he's really uh, just an incredible artist. He's a sex god. He's, uh, <laughs> you know, just this smooth, uh, is insane bass player. He's, it's just, it's just love making music, you know? Gotcha. It's, it's, but it's funky too. It's like dancey. I think he just, you know, he's he's putting good energy out into the world. And uh, yeah, I want to do a revocation Donnie Benet world tour at some point. We'll see if we can make that happen. It'd be cool. You just put it out into the world. You met, you're manifesting right now. Or or just have or Donnie just like if I could do a collaboration with Donnie Benet, that would be cool. Like a, like if he needs like a guitar player for like a tour. I might cancel revocation tour just to like go on tour with Donnie Benet. <laughs> Donnie, if you're out there, if you're listening, brother, let's make this happen. I mean, you know, weirder shits happened. I, you know, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. You know, Donnie, give me a call. But anyway, I'm big, big. So that, so like, and those were like good. way outside the realm of, of, of metal. I just, I just wanted some music that was like, I'm gonna like amp me up, like. Um, sometimes you just like hear one of those songs and like you could listen to it. Like that's what I love about music. And I, I, I never want to lose that feeling of like, you know, you discover like a new thing and like, you just like, does you could listen to the song a hundred times and you're just like addicted to it. And like, that was what drove me as a musician, like in the, in the beginning. Um, and it still drives me to this day. And, um, you know, it's not like I find like a new band that I'm obsessed with like every, every single day, but sometimes I don't know, just the vibe just hits me right. And it's just something that I need in that time. And I can't even say that maybe I, had I heard it like in a different setting or point in my life that maybe I wouldn't have been like as like jazzed on it as I was. But for that time period, like, oh, my God, I was just fucking obsessed with with that Cobra Man Heat Wave song. And the video is fucking incredible. I, I love hearing about 
um, metal dudes listening to not metal, and that—that's usually what I what I get when I ask that question. S- something that's not so fucking intense is what they're listening to when they're making it or when they're on tour. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> so, but like, I've, I mean like the new cannibal record that they put out, like that's a banger. Like, you know, I, I checked out, uh, like the, like the new cosmic putrefaction record is great. Um, there was some cool bands that I found like during, uh, quarantine, I kind of went on like a little bit of like a death metal resurgence, I think. And, um, ended up like checking out like a bunch of bands that like I hadn't that like weren't really like on my radar that really inspired me um so sunless that band rules um yeah there's like so many so many cool bands gorophilia i think they're from like finland or something that record's sick um yeah there's there's always dudes out there being creative which i which I appreciate. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the jazz influence, because um, I've seen you rip some jazz and been like, "Oh shit! Oh no! You you real you can really do the thing. It's not just like like I studied jazz. Like I was a jazz performance major at Berkeley for the one year that I was there, and I studied jazz for two other years, basically on a purely academic level. I couldn't fucking play you a respectable chorus of autumn leaves if you put a gun to my head like i i just i just can't really do i just wanted to learn all the inner workings of it so i could get make cooler and more interesting metal and it seems like that you've done that maybe uh give us an idea of like how it shapes the way that you look at making riffs in if it does at all i don't know maybe maybe you turn it off entirely but i can hear a lot of like what i would consider much more interesting harmony uh, chord voicings, melody creation, everything that I hear in your music to me sounds like it has at least a little bit of that in it. But I want to know how you're thinking about it. I mean, I think so much of that stuff you know, you you learn it so that you like kind of don't think about it when you're actually like creating stuff. I mean, you know, I can point to different instances, you know, here or there, like where like you know I'm like I'm using like jazz voicings, you know, in in a metal context right like drop twos or drop threes stuff that like you know unless you kind of like sat down with like a you know a chord book and like learn them like they you wouldn't come across them in in metal but to me that's just kind of part of my like vocabulary now you know what i mean so i don't even really sort of think about it like that it's just you know an e minor seven chord or an e minor major seven chord or a d seven altered chord like like you know throw some distortion on it play around like i all but i always had that mindset like when i was first getting like my chord sheets like uh for comping uh when i was at in high school uh i mean you know i'd throw distortion on and start like riffing around like oh this minor seven flat five voicing is kind of cool like that's like no one really uses that or or don't, or don't hear that often like it sounds gnarly like it sounds dissonant and like weird and evil like why, like why can't i use this so i started yeah just kind of always having an open mind to that and like ex- started exploring that more and more like in in high school and then yeah i just kind of naturally sort of started to like take hold in my in my playing but it's not necessarily like oh i got to sit down and like write a death metal song with jazz chords or something like that i think it just the, the more general influence I think is with my ear. Like I think a lot of bands maybe don't even realize they're like in one key the whole time. Like they're just kind of like always naturally pull down to whatever the lowest string is. So you're in the key of B or in the key of E or, and even some of like the, the tropes, right? Like, like the one to flat six chord change that gets used like all the time. Like, 
I think I kind of know what to actively like want to like avoid. Or even if I do like a one to flat six, like I might, you know, like alter the flat six chord to make it like not like like to actually do like a modal interchange thing there. So I'm actually mm-hmm. like fully changing a key, like instead of I don't, I don't know how music nerdy you want to get, but if I have E minor and I go to C major, right? All like you know, it would, the, the the jazz chords for that would be like E minor seven and then like C major seven. But you know, if you go to like C dominant seven. Uh, then you're doing like modal interchange, like the five of the E, uh, you know, you flat that down and that becomes uh, like a <laughs> fruit fly in here or something. Uh, that, that becomes uh, like the flat seven of C. So like you're naturally kind of taking it out of the key. So it maybe is like a familiar chord change, but you're using like what would be maybe considered in, in, in a kind of rudimentary way, doing like a reharm of that chord change. So like learning about reharmonization as it pertains to jazz is... Like those kind of more like overarching general concepts, I think, are are definitely like in in the subconscious of my mind for sure. But like, but although sometimes like on on like on the new record, it's such like an Easter egg. I don't know. Like actually, you'll you'll we'll be here. We'll be hearing it here first, I guess. But the 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 har- guitar harmony. There's a swell in the song "God Forsaken." I think you said you heard the whole record, so I don't know if you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. But there's a section where God Forsaken like breaks down and there's like this creepy harmony that comes in. And to me, it like has almost like a Metallica, like Injustice for All feel when they had those kind of epic like harmony swells. But I like basically took a piece of that, the, 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 the melody that's that piece is like a piece from like Joe Henderson's Recordame that I like added like weird like harmonies to and just was like fucking around with one day and was like, oh, like that melody is really cool. And like, I'm not doing it like in a swing feel. And I think like he's coming in like maybe like on a different part of the beat. Like I think I'm coming in on like a downbeat and his was coming in on an upbeat. But I just remember being like, oh, that's like a cool, like it's just a cool melody. Like like the, I think the shape of it looked kind of cool on guitar. And I just started messing around with that and then like added like a fourth harmony to it. And then it was like, oh, this actually sounds like this weird bizarro like Metallica kind of like thing and it like so so I like taking some of the jazz influence and like completely disguising it you know like sometimes bands are like oh we play jazz metal and it's like really like on the nose or whatever and like you know or or it's guys that like you know think it's jazz just because they went to like a clean channel like on their amp or something <laughs> yeah and like you know sometimes like that <laughs> can be cool worst. and sometimes it's just like kind of heavy handed and, and like you know maybe trying to like force like a square peg into a round hole sort of thing but for me like yeah i i like to almost like go the other way and make it like not even like obvious in the least bit and in fact like kind of like disguise it and like make it like sort of metal first and foremost so it has this kind of otherworldly almost like alien like sound you can't even like put your finger on where it came from so it's fun to do that i mean the 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 intro to um fathomless catacombs those are like I think I took that chord change from like a Wayne Shorter tune, like a, like a, like it's a small piece of it. But I mean, Wayne Shorter is one of my favorite um, jazz musicians of all time. I mean, he's a living legend. I think I saw him play at his 80th birthday party, uh, oh, no, party, you know, 80th birthday concert at like Symphony Hall in Boston. Joe Lovano played, and I think it was Brian Blade on drums, who's just fucking so good. Um, and he was up there just like ripping, like 80 years old. His solos are amazing, but for me, where like what I love about Wayne's playing um, is like his composition, like his, like his chord choices and like 
his arranging and his melodies, like just super unique. Um, if you get a chance, listen to his record, The All Seeing Eye with with Herbie Hancock. It's like it's so deep. Um, Writing this down. So yeah, finding finding influence because I think sometimes people like they think like, oh, it's jazz and it's like you know gonna be some like easy listening shit or like they maybe like only know like like you know like a tune out of like the real book like that's like more of a nice tune like 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 autumn leaves for example and like you know maybe they hear like a radio version of it right but like you know you hear fucking keith jarrett play autumn leaves and it's like frightening like it's like how <laughs> like i have a transcription of it like from like i think it's his still live record like the solo is like 27 pages long and like he never runs out of ideas yeah like he's just going, 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 and and the ideas are so cool and hip and like weird chromaticism and you know because because a, a great jazz musician can take like a basic form like a blues and make it sound like the most fucked up thing you've ever heard. So like that's what I, that that's really kind of where I get inspiration from. That it's not about because you could you could have chord changes and you like play it and you're like why don't I sound you know I'm playing the chords. Like, why does it sound as good as, you know, when someone said it? Well, it's like, well, they're they're reharming it and they're, you know, their sense of rhythm is super hip and they're adding in all these altered tensions. So, like, before you you, you know it, like, you know, the, the F7 chord, you know, there's no root in it. You know, it's got a flat nine and a sharp nine and like a, you know, you could you could play a chord that's just all altered tensions and th- that could just be the chord. So there's not even like any chord tones in it. And it's just like this, like cluster of of tension and chaos but then it might resolve beautifully to the next chord and also like i think seeing how you know jazz musicians takes on like the rules and they kind of throw because like when you learn jazz like you know it seems very academic and there's all these rules and especially if you're doing arranging like when i took my big band arranging course it was like you gotta you know think about this register and like you can't write below this certain octave but you know i see like you know like Galad Hexelman's a friend of mine. He's inc- like one of the best jazz guitar players in the world. And like, you know, he'll throw these really gnarly, like low end voicings sometimes on things. And it just like, just sounds like just super like, you know, gnarly, but it like works perfectly. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. And it like, it's like, wow, these dudes, like they break the rules and then that broken rule, like then becomes the new rule, you know? So it, it always is evolving and it's always sort of challenging itself. And, I, I I love a, a a type of music that like the whole point is for it to constantly evolve. I think that's why I love jazz so much because because metal is much more like classical to me. The whole point is to execute it as close to the record as possible, minus the little cool things you do. Like I was mentioning earlier, where you change things around. But like yeah, when you get like like when you, when you, when you see like a like a tour of like a you know group of jazz musicians and like you know you're getting a truly unique experience that night because the shit that they played the night before the night before that and the night before that was all different like no one's taking the same solo it's sort of the complete opposite uh idea like if you were to go see a jazz artist and they played it exactly the same as the album it would be insane. You could, you wouldn't. You'd be like, "What the fuck just happened?" I wouldn't. You don't want to hear that. Right. It's supposed to be improvised. They would. You'd feel like you were cheated. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and and you you, you wouldn't have a you wouldn't be playing with dudes for too long after that because like yeah, you know, wouldn't stand. I think there's like a there's like a built in irreverence in jazz for the like because it sort of grew out of like them trying to make these fucking basically show tunes like more interesting and danceable like playing songs that people knew and then like fucking around with them getting really good at fucking around and like 
and you have to extend it so that people will keep dancing, you know, like way, way fucking back in the day or whatever. Like, and it just sort of like grew out of that and adding blues influences and shit. Like you're saying, the, the, uh, the blues note, like the flat three on a dominant seven chord, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the thing you're talking about. It was like this fuck you. It was like, hey, like, you're supposed to play this note. Oh, too bad. We're playing this this other one instead. And yeah. after a while, it becomes the sound. It becomes cool. Yeah. I mean, I I have explored stuff like. I mean, I I'm, I'm such a a student of 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 jazz, and I love to learn about it. And you know, I'll I'll go down like these different lecture rabbit holes and listen to dudes, you know, talk about their approaches. And like, I mean, you could. Like, I think it was like George Garzon, who's like, you know, he was from the Massachusetts scene, um, monster saxophone player. He has like a whole crazy approach to playing, which is like a triadic chromatic approach. It's just super out there. But he's, he's you know, one of the most unique saxophone players um, alive today. And, um, you know, he was like given a clinic somewhere in like, I forget, I'm gonna, like Russia or wherever, like some overseas thing. And he was like, oh, yeah, like. It's like I can put like I can play like a flat nine on like a major seven chord like on a ballad and like have it sound hip. <laughs> you know, I'm like, damn. That's-. I I heard like uh, you know, it was like someone like had uploaded like audio from like a Pat Metheny lesson, and he was just talking about like rhythm and how important like rhythm was and like and like chromaticism and you know, I mean Pat Metheny is like he's an incredible jazz guitar player as as, as maybe some of you guys know out there, and he was just saying like. I forget what he said, but he was basically like, "Yeah, like I could play a chromatic scale and it'll sound like some hip shit." And like he he, <laughs> he, he played a chromatic. And like I had to stop it and rewind it because I'm like, <laughs> "There's no way that that was just like just a chromatic scale." But it was, and it, but it was just like he like the way he articulated it, and like I think he put like a couple little like pauses in there, and I'm like, "I, I fucking can't believe that." <laughs> and you know, you go down the line of any of these guys, like like Alan Holdsworth. You know, watched you know some of his you know instructional videos, clinic type things, where it's like he'll play something, and I'll be like, "That was the most what what scale was that? That was the craziest scale I've ever heard." And I'll do this in lessons too, like to like kind of illustrate like a point, like that it's not necessarily like because people will be like, "Oh, I want to learn exotic modes and all this shit." And it's like that doesn't necessarily make your playing more exotic if you approach a mode. It doesn't matter how exotic it is if you just only approach it going straight up and down, and you don't think about you know, doing different sequences of it or or actually learning the harmony that's built off of every single note, you're not getting nearly as much mileage out of it as you could. And yeah, I remember like he played this scale. I was like, that's the craziest scale I've ever heard. And he's like, yeah, so that's C major. And I'm like, like, what? <laughs> you know, and like had to like listen to it again. Like actually, like still didn't believe him. I'm like, he's making some shit up in there. Like there's some, there's some weird chromatic trickery that he just isn't. And like, I'm like, no, that like that is... Those are the notes of a C major scale. He's starting on the seventh and ending on the nine, and he's doing a string skip in there, but he got all of the notes in, but it was just th- through his Holdsworthian lens that he viewed that scale, and that's why it's not so much about the scale. It's about, it's it's like the alphabet, right? You know, like we have all these letters, but there's a difference between, you know, Dr. Seuss and Shakespeare, right? You know, it's like what you what you do with the organization of those letters that you create your art out of. Um, and that really opened up my eyes. There was another quote, I forget, I think it was from a painter, but he essentially said like, you know, art is not about um, finding new landscapes to paint. It's about looking at the same landscape through a different set of eyes, right? And I, I think that kind of touches on this where it's like, it's not necessarily like finding 
I mean, yes, the more you know, the more scales you know, the more, you know, exotic arpeggios, like, sure, like, that's not going to, like, hurt at all. That's going to make you, you know, have have more ideas to pull from. But if you approach it the same way every single time, and and you're not going to get a new result out of that. It's just going to sound like, you know, your same approach that you've always taken. Yeah, it might sound, if you're playing melodic minor versus... Dorian the, it might sound like a little bit more exotic because you're hearing the major seven, but you're always just going straight up and straight down. You're not doing any other cool shit where you're exploring the arpeggios of the scale or or writing and creating harmony with that and finding ways to make melodies from that scale that aren't just straight up and down. So yeah, that, that really opened my ears um, and eyes to like thinking about like, oh shit, like how I organize these these notes is is super important because you can make a major scale sound like the most exotic shit someone's ever heard. And I like I said, I've done that same exact thing in lessons before. And it's like blown students' minds are like, that was that? I'm like, yeah, it's just, that's like that's a major scale. So like think about like what you could do with even like a triad or something like that if you reorganize the notes in a different way or or, or you know a seventh chord or whatever. So de- definitely fascinating shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a one way to put it holy shit it's a it's a that's a rabbit hole that's a lifelong rabbit hole that you oh, can yeah. go down i mean and and you should it's and a, a it would be a worthy sacrifice of your entire life to do just to learn just all that shit you know what i mean like makes you better it's more like goddamn see like now you got me go like oh fuck now i got to go hear more about this shit um, these are all like basic ideas that I understand, but at the same time, it's like, oh boy, trying to, trying to grasp that perspective that you're talking about could be a lifelong study. And, and you'd it's never, like, you know, you'd never reach the top of that mountain anyway. You know, like that's the coolest thing about music to me is it's like, you know, like who wants to play like a video game that you beat in five minutes, right? Like you want something that has like replay value. And I think music has like the ultimate replay value because like, as soon as you think you know everything, you know, that's when I think your artistic self kind of like withers, right? Like I, I, I'll be a student of music for the rest of my life. Um, and, 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 and dudes that are way, way far surpassing me in terms of their, of their knowledge and everything like that, like Anthony Braxton or something like that. Like he refers to himself as like a student of music. And it's like, you know, he's, he's professor and, you know, like toward the world. And it's just like, this is creative genius. And like, you know, and, and he's, you know, an older gentleman, but it's like, he still considers himself a student of music, at least from interviews that I've read with him. And it's just like, holy shit. You know, like if anyone can say like, I got it down, it's that dude, but he's still hungry to learn more. So and anyway, I, I just think that that's so cool and, and inspiring. And sometimes like with, with, with metal, like, yeah, like, because it's so brutal and like there's like a macho like element and i think maybe it can come off as like yeah you know i got this or whatever but like in the jazz realm it's like dudes are always not that they haven't been like you know egotistical you know personalities in 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 jazz over the years but i guess it's like they kind of maybe earn it like a little bit more because they're just (laughs) (laughs) they know so much but yeah, any like, you know, really great musician that I've interacted with is like always sort of hungry to learn more. Like they still have that like that spark and that excitement about music. And I, I hope I never lose that because it's like um, just super inspiring to me. I always really liked that. Like I said, the influence was always like pretty obvious to me in Revocation or like there was 
how do I put it? It it I always loved that you were able to use very uh, jazz influenced um, type of harmony without ever making it sound jazzy or like I mean maybe here and there, but using that mindset to create more interesting metal songs and it was always fucking metal and nobody listening to revocation i think would ever be at almost any moment would never be like oh man this isn't that fucking metal like this sounds like fucking nerd music like it's it's always metal as fuck and evil as shit in ways that uh i think that the average metal band just hasn't been able to achieve and i think you're for example you mentioned like a, like a minor major 7 and minor 7 flat 5 chords and stuff i always felt like Black metal bands should have been farming this shit fucking years ago. Like, how? Where? Where are the black metal bands using these minor, major seven? Like, what? They always just use these fucking minor triads. I'm like, if you put a major seven on that, it would be ten times as evil. Why don't you look? Right. <laughs> Come on. Right. Right. So I always thought that was really cool. Well, thank you very much. I I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I really do. Um, yeah. I know it's funny with with with, with black metal. Uh, but I don't know. Minor triads have a vibe too. Like, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, if you if you just throw like a a flatted fifth on there or yeah or a major seven, that it, it creates a different uh, a totally different sound. It's like yeah, even even more gnarly. I mean, there's there's probably some weird black metal band in France right now, like that have some crazy like jazz voicing. You know, it's like out of like a Mel Bay book or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I. I'm very interested. Uh, interest, yeah. I'm very interested to think what uh, hear what you're going to think about my video that goes up tomorrow because it it's basically a jazz joke. Like the whole thing is like one big, really stupid jazz joke, and um, you're you're either going to laugh really hard or um, hate it. But okay. it's a uh, basically a, a giant steps joke. Okay. I'm sorry, not tomorrow. That's uh, that's not tomorrow's video. The uh, in a few weeks. It's, I'm working on it right now. Okay. I'll send it to you when it's done. Sure. But the exploration of new and exciting sounds to me is uh like harmonically and melodically seems to be what jazz is more about than anything else and like the sort of freedom to like a a little bit of a playground and like i was saying earlier it feels like that's sort of at odds with metal in a lot of ways but you found a way to fuse it pretty well do you like do you find that you um talk to other metal musicians about this kind of stuff often or i don't know do you ever feel weird about like having so much music knowledge around like fucking neanderthal metal dudes or bashing out cool shit that i love right, right? right. like no no fucking hate like I, right. i'm a metalhead for life but like you know what i mean uh you know it's fun like sometimes i think maybe i like, like catch myself like like nerding out like oh i just took it to nerd town right there and like maybe i need to like dial it dial it back you know like you can kind of see someone like uh-huh. Yeah. You know, like, like sort of checking out a little bit. Um, but other times, like I've had like really great conversations and like, I think it just all depends on the, on the person, you know, like, like if, if me and like, you know, my, my buddy Luke LeMay from Gorgots, if we get together and we start talking about like fucking Penderecki or, you know, you know, Stravinsky or whatever, like we'll, we'll you know, we'll nerd out. He'll be like, oh, have you heard this composer? And like, I'm like, oh no, have you heard this guy? And we'll kind of go back and, um, but you know, he's classically trained and, it's very much in that realm. Like, I don't know if I like, you know, was, but it, it really depends. I think it depends on the environment. You know, it depends on how much, 
alcohol has been consumed, <laughs> right, or other mind-altering substances. Like, yeah, it it just I guess it just sort of depends. But like, like I think a lot of people are are more open-minded, and for some people, it's like you just kind of need to like hold their hand a little bit, you know, because like whether it's jazz or classical, it's not like the shallow end of the pool. You know, like the re- the reason I got into it was it wasn't like I discovered it like on my own. I mean, certainly it's not like, ra- you know, radio stations are like bumping the shit or like it's like this like status symbol genre or whatever. I mean, you kind of have to like seek it out and be like exposed to it and like have someone like explain to you like why it's cool or why it's important. But that's like like a lot of more like heady art. You know, it's not like as simple as like two plus two equals four kind of thing. It's like it's much more like, all right, we're there's there's some underlying shit and it's and it's it's important for a variety of reasons. There's historical context, right? I mean, this shit doesn't just existing in a vacuum. I mean, there was political context. There's, you know, all, like all of these things that were kind of coming to the, um, to the forefront that, you know, led to for, for jazz, for example, being the genre that, that it is. I mean, the dudes that were, were pushing the envelope were like, I mean, really going for it. But I think that was for like a, a variety of reasons, you know, I mean, one, they loved the music, but there, there was also like, you know, it was essentially just sort of like, you know, popular, you know, dance music at the time. And these guys were like, no, like we want to push it into like, I mean, it's getting faster and fat. I mean, bebop, it's like, you can't like dance to like bebop, you know, it's like, I think it was sort of like, kind of like the grind core of, of jazz at the time. It's like just getting more and more extreme. It's like, okay, like, you know, let's see you dance to this kind of thing. Right. It's like, we're going to play like 300 BPM. Um, and I think that's just kind of a, like, in a way I see some overlap with metal, right? Like the put, like the extremity, you know, going against the status quo, going against the grain, it, it being a form of protest music, it being like a fucking fuck you to people that like, you know, uh, it's supposed to be easy listening. It's supposed to be this or that. It's like, no, this is, this is my music. I call the shots. I mean, think about John Coltrane, right? Totally misunderstood for a good portion of his career when he was exploring different avenues of, of free jazz. I mean, he was at the bleeding edge of that shit. And like critics, like fucking, some critics hated it. Like, like did not have nice things to say about Coltrane and, and Eric Dolphy and like all that shit. Like people just like didn't even get it. So like we have the the luxury of of like, time where we can kind of look back and i think we look at people that were just sort of that that are like revered now but maybe at the time like they were like completely misunderstood and that's like a lot of great artists that are like that have a vision that really push it like people sometimes like aren't ready for that shit at that moment you know like i I remember touring with atheists like that was like one of my first like tours that i did and like i thought atheists was so cool because they they really leaned into the jazz metal thing and like i mean i remember listening to them and like seeing the album covers and shit and getting a tour with them and you know they were like yeah people fucking hated us back in the day like people like didn't get it you know what i mean like i'm sure they had their fans but like it was definitely like you know if they're on tour with like i mean i don't know if they were tour with death or any of those bands but i'm sure they there must have been a bunch of cross-pollination of like other sort of floridian death metal bands that they've joined up with but like yeah i remember hearing stories where it's like it's just you know, some people loved it, you know, and then some people just like didn't get it at all. I was like, this isn't brutal. Right. But it's like, but they're doing a different thing. So I do see overlap in terms of the, you know, pushing the envelope, the creativity, the just the, 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 the sheer endurance and speed and inhuman kind of quality of some of that shit. Like, you know, when I watch like, I don't know, like, I mean, there's so many like ridiculous blazing 
metal drummers out there, you're like, like, how is that possible? And then you like Tony Williams, and it's like, how is that possible? You know what I mean? Like playing blazingly fast, and these kids were like 19 sometimes, like in like you know Miles Davis's band, just like cooking as fast as possible, and like it was probably like fucking melting people's brains back in the day. Like, how are these dudes doing that? So I think there's an overlap there, but yes, in terms of the you know, the execution. It's very different because jazz is, is about, you know, sort of the, the, the improvisational element of it is obviously the hallmark of jazz. And I think for for metal, it's yeah, it's it's much more like classical where it's about the execution. And it's like you go to see, you know, you listen to the record, you hear it over and over and over again. And then you go to see it live and you want to see as close to that representation of it as as possible. Um, I always thought it'd be cool to like just do like a two man band with like a drummer and just do like an improv like fully improvised like grind band with someone that's like you know just has real good kind of eye communication and like a good <laughs> ear that you really vibe with and like literally like you know whatever recordings get made are just like only live and you know you if you don't come out to see it that night like you're not gonna you're never gonna see the same thing again so i pay to see that shit right you know so <laughs> And and hey, you, the, you don't have to rehearse, right? You could do right. it tonight. Yeah, you just gotta you just gotta <laughs> practice your ass off to like you know make sure that you know when you go in you got your your chops right. That to me, I think is part of why the songwriting portion in metal is so important and still I think kind of underrated um, or undervalued in jazz. The composition is like uh, it's important that everybody knows it because you're on the same. You got to be on the same page. You got to play the head. <laughs> And then know the changes so that you can rip over them. And sometimes in some styles, it's much more important, like vocal jazz or whatever. But it's like you were saying, Keith Jarrett can rip on uh, Autumn Leaves, the fucking absolute baseline first jazz song that everybody learns and make it sound like something completely fucking different in metal because you're playing the the song the way that it was written and if you do it wrong people are gonna fucking tear you apart like you go up there and alternate pick master or puppets or whatever like you, you got to do it the way that it was written so hence the fucking songwriting is so super duper important right um a riff is a beautiful thing you know yeah and it's that's your tagline that's the, that's the click of the, of the youtube video a riff is a beautiful thing i'm gonna make a little <laughs> coffee mug boop a little <laughs> look for collab trey xavier dave davidson merch sure sure a riff is a beautiful thing yeah. it's funny because my my actual tagline is a riff is not a song <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're just fucking that up we're just we're just flipping that around yeah i don't have that on a shirt just yet but the the, the actual point of that statement that of of course was that uh, like the, the full version is uh, riffs are fucking great and super important right but you have to make a whole song out right. of it right you know right. um but that's uh that's <laughs> <laughs> a riff is a beautiful thing and you know like you're saying like it was more like it's more like classical music it's composed a certain way you have to do it right uh, there's a right and a wrong way there's not not a lot of wiggle room um well a riff when you think about it i mean you know what is a riff in its most in its most simplest terms i mean it's just it's just sort of like a, a repeated you know generally you know anywhere between a, a bar to four bars to maybe eight bars right you know like repeated musical idea but the whole point of it being repeatable, it needs is it needs to be worth repeating. Yeah, right. You know, so like it, it, so you need to really like put everything that you can into your riffs because like yeah, otherwise 
you could just have like you know riff salad of one one thing after the next and it's you know almost like you know if nothing ever repeats there's nothing ever to kind of like latch on to which you know might be an aesthetic for like again for some for some bands where you know you know you could have like a song that just like is one long I don't know if anyone really ever does this, but it could. I guess it could be kind through of composed. Cool, yeah, like just one oh, long yeah. thing, and it's just three minutes long, and it just is this musical kind of. You know, it'd have to be incredibly orchestrated out, but like, um, well, that's like a, like early job for a cowboy was like that. Like nothing ever repeated. But there were still riffs that like had a cycle that would come back. Like you know, even if it was only once. Like I'm talking about like oh okay, just just literally three minutes of like. There's no, there, there's no cycle back to like Job for a Cowboy had risks because they they I mean I could hear some of the risks in my head like they they did repeat like I mean I'm talking like nothing repeats right right it doesn't like uh, it doesn't even repeat when it happens the one time right right I exactly it's yeah, just yeah. this this evolving thing which which would could be its own thing but it certainly wouldn't be like a traditional. I mean, it, that could be something fascinating to explore, actually. But it, it wouldn't be like, uh, first of all, it would require like just a ton of rehearsal because there's nothing to, you know, so everyone in the band would need to be like so fucking locked into it. And I guess, you know, because the musical ideas would be so, so uh, I mean, w- would be just constantly evolving. There might need to be some type of thread that would carry it through in, in some way, maybe a motif or whatever. Um but yeah, who I mean, but yeah, that would that's not like that wouldn't feel like a traditional song, right? There's 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 there wouldn't be any right. like riffs that you could point to in that song. So that just kind of goes to show the importance of a riff. It gives it, it gives your ear something to latch on to, it gives something structure. Um and that's why, you know, make sure your riffs are sick, kids, because uh, that's that's the most important thing about metal is a riff, I think. <laughs> Don't say that, Dave. No. No. Oh, I think I, I do think that that's a great way to look at it though because like I'm over here like trying to get people to figure out what to do with their riffs. Right. But the point that you've made about it being worth repeating is uh something that I think I've I've sort of glossed over because i think i I guess people like maybe inherently like the average metal guitar player it maybe they know that inherently or they because that's most of what they do is sit there and write riff after riff that they realize that but it's uh i i didn't really look at it from that angle maybe just because i was sick of people sending me songs that were just fucking riffs and nothing on top Right, right right but i'm um I'm going to have to think on that. This is the moment. I always have at least one, one revelatory moment in every podcast where I'm like, oh, fuck. I got to like rethink some shit. <laughs> um, Next week, it'll be like, how, how riffs are made. <laughs> how riffs are made. I've abandoned the songwriting format entirely. You're like, fuck songs. songs. Are, no, riffs are riffs. all that matter. Yeah, you just need riffs, dude. That's it. I'm going to put a pin in that idea because I'm going to have to think about that some more. Um, You're going to need therapy after that one, dude. You're I like, need some therapy. <laughs> I have to rethink all my shit. I guess I'd be curious about um, maybe some stuff that you would recommend to metal musicians who want to dip their toes in some jazz and and learn it learn learn a little bit like what's a what's a good starting point so sure i mean i think there's just no substitute for like listening to it you know so people like have come to me like oh i want to learn jazz and i'm like cool like what are some of your favorite like jazz artists or whatever and they have like zero right so like you know it's not for everybody right like you know so you have to like like of of course like 
explore new genres, explore shit. But like, if it's not for you, it's 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 not for you. And like, but it is one of those. It, it's one of those genres where like, yeah, you like you can't kind of like half ass it, right? Like, it really needs to be like. You can appreciate it and not have to play it too. Like that's the other thing. Like not everyone's going to be good at jazz. I mean, it requires like a ton of dedication, and there isn't like you can't be like like you could start like uh you could be playing guitar for like a year and start like you know kind of like a sludgy death metal band and it, it, it could blow up and you could be the most popular band in like two years and you get like some sick merch and you write some just like heavy sounding riffs and you know it could be the best thing since sliced bread. Like that's like just you know, how things work in different genres. It's the same thing with like punk. You know what I mean? Like it could be like people, you don't need to know music theory to be able to like play like punk rock. Like you got to have like a good drummer that can play like D beats and shit. And like, you got to have like an, like an ear for it, but like, you don't need to know like the circle of fifths or like, you know, <laughs> tensions or, you know, harmony or any shit like that. With jazz, in order to like get good at playing it, like they're, they're, like you have to like really learn like a whole like language, right? Uh, you, you, you can't fake it. Um, you just like wouldn't even be able to like sit in on a gig, you know, it's just, you'd be, you'd get like mowed down. Um, and now like people are nicer. I mean, like back in the day, like, I mean, in like Miles Davis's like autobiography, like he talks about like, there was one scene, I think it was like called like Minton's or Milton's. It was some like jazz club in Harlem and some like dude came to a jazz session, like, and like played saxophone and he sucked and like the patrons like beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and they were like, like, do not come back here. And like, and unless you can play, like that's how seriously they took it. I don't even think it was the musicians that did it. It was like the like the patrons. They were like, "This is this is like this is sacred ground," and you just like defiled that. And like, now you must pay. Uh, so like that to me is kind of sick. God damn, because <laughs> you just can't like can't be a poser at all. So I don't know. I appreciate that. <laughs> but if you're gonna like like check out record, like like do do your homework, like you know learn about the history of it, like go back in time a little bit, you know. You don't necessarily need to start with like the earliest like big band shit, but like, you know, like look at the music of like a timeless jazz guitar player like Wes Montgomery, for example. Check out his record Smoking at the Half Note. That's like one of the best jazz guitar records of all time. It's just an incredible record. His phrasing's beautiful. You know, like I'll I'll sit down and like learn a little bit of that. That was one of the first solos I ever learned was 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 four on six. And it's just his phrasing is just so timeless and just so excellent. And then, you know, listen to other guys that like, you know, influenced all of the greats and 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 are and are obviously like greats themselves. Like you know, listen to Charlie Parker. I mean, he like fucking wrote the book on bebop, essentially, right? You know, like his tunes are still in the 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 the, the, the jazz bible, right? Like you know, like it's it, like anthropology, confirmation. You know, he wrote all these like great you know, ornithology, like all these like killer tunes that like are still played today like on any given gig dexterity um you know another another rhythm changes tune so like you know explore that and then maybe kind of keep going down the timeline and you know you know you know obviously like check out you know miles davis who is so revolutionary and obviously john coltrane who arguably is the most important musician who's ever lived and then you know see where your tastes fall like you know explore different instruments right i mean i just brought up you know three horn players right i only named one guitar player so far that's the beauty of jazz is it's not guitar driven right so like yes there's incredible jazz guitar players both old and 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 new that are mind-blowing but you know you talk to all those cats and they're like you know they listen to piano players and listen to horn players like it's not like with 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 metal or with rock i mean you know you have drums guitar slash bass and vocals 
maybe a keyboard once in a while, but you know, more often than not, not, right? So like, we're so used to hearing those instruments. Listen to jazz, not for guitar, but like for piano, listen to Keith Jarrett, listen to, uh, I mean, Bill Evans, you know, listen to uh, Herbie Hancock, listen to Gonzalo Rubalcaba, like all these, like, you know, the, those four guys I just named are completely different styles. Chick Corea, obviously, right? You know, the dudes that were doing really revolutionary shit. And then horn players, you know, Wayne Shorter, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Eric Dolphy, who's like, you know, the, the, the demolish of jazz. Like he just was like writing just crazy off the wall, like weird heads, like super bizarre, just avant-garde shit that like was like blowing people's minds back then and then and is still mind-blowing. And you know, find find out your taste from there. So you can't like get good at it unless you start to like like listen to it and uh, you know do your homework a little bit. So I would say sort of listen to a whole bunch of stuff first, you know, and then if you have interest in um, studying it, you know, you know, pick up a real book, pick up some type type of chord, you know, something with the, you know, so you can learn your chords or whatever in your arpeggios. So you can just get some of these basic chord shapes down. And then like, you know, you really can't innovate until you can imitate. So like, you know, you can't just go in and start like playing over like autumn leaves and expect to sound good. Like learn, learn someone else's solo over it. You know, learn 10 other people's solos over this tune. The nice thing about these jazz tunes is like once you know the form, like so many people have played these tunes. So, you know, you could listen to Chick Corea play Autumn Leaves and you can listen to Keith Jarrett play Autumn Leaves and they're both going to deliver like two monstrous solos. If you're a beginner, there's no way you're going to be able to play either of them. <laughs> but like, you know, like something that's maybe more, you know, like approachable, like maybe you, maybe you find, I mean, Wes Montgomery was a total technician was amazing, but there's, there's, there's wet, if you're a metal player, there's certain West shit that's definitely like, you know, attainable that's going to blow your mind in terms of someone like the phrasing, D-natural blues, like, you know, his, his, he's playing a blues, but he's doing all this crazy shit on there. And it's it's not like blazing, blazing fast. It's like, you know, 16th notes, but at like a slower tempo. So like learn something like that and absorb that and then try to put that into your own playing. Because if you, if you don't have the vocabulary down, it, it's not going to come out sounding right. You can't just kind of like wing it. Like you, you kind of need to like develop like a repertoire and you need to like learn the vocabulary before you can start to like really make music on your own. I always found that in my studying jazz, they didn't emphasize doing um, doing transcriptions like you're talking about nearly enough. And that I think that's because yeah, I think if everybody knew that you can you you can't necessarily learn everything from doing transcriptions, but you might not have to go to music school if you do tons and tons and tons of very detailed transcriptions of stuff and really get inside of it. Like, you can't learn the names for shit, but, like, if I'd have done that instead of learning all the theory shit, I think I'd probably be I'd be a lot better of a musician. I mean, it's, it's important to learn both if you want to actually do it. That's the thing. Because but, if you do the transcriptions and you don't have a frame of reference to put it into, like, and you're just looking at it like tab... You're not going to be able to see through like the 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 noise. Let's say like you, you kind of need to know like oh he's okay. This is the tab, but like these are the actual notes on this chord, and these are the intervals of those notes, and that's how it connects to right. that. You know, okay, he, someone's playing a C minor seven. He's playing 
E flat major seven, right? So it's like a tertiary harmony, like substitution. It basically gives you every chord tone except for the root and, and, and plus the nine, right? And then it's like, yeah. okay, if he's playing, you know, major seven sharp five, right? Over C minor seven. Well, that's sort of the same thing, but now instead of like a C minor seven, it's more of like a C minor major seven. So it's coming from like maybe like a modal interchange of a melodic minor. So all that shit that I just said, like, if you don't know that, it's like not gonna like you're not gonna be able to see that from looking at it. But if you if you know that, you can kind of like see this cluster of notes and all of a sudden like hone it in to this one specific thing and say, okay, that's what that is. And then you see it time and time again, and you go, oh, okay, now I like I see what this person's doing. I I look for overlap. Like if I see like the classic like major pentatonic line, if you take like a root major second, major third, perfect fifth, Coltrane used that phrase. Wayne Shorter used it. It's just it's just basically a major triad plus plus the second degree of the scale, and it just sounds super melodic. But then you see other guys using it, like modern guys, like Jonathan Kreisberg will do it, but he'll do it with like a tritone substitution, so you get like two different sounds. Which I'm used to doing tritone subs of just the tri, but he'll throw that extra note in there to make to add a little bit something to it, and then like you know you see it three, four, ten times, and it finally clicks, and you say, oh, this is like an important piece of like the jazz, you know vocabulary you can almost look at it like like any kind of language like with like slang you know what i mean like like you like you pick up like a new word or like a new like phrase or a, a piece of slang and all of a sudden it becomes like part of like the the natural like, like everybody's like lexicon and in, in jazz it's obviously a much smaller portion of people that can like speak that but like there's certain lines that i hear i'm like oh that's like that's a callback to like a charlie parker lick or something like that it might be like in the modern context and someone might like kind of fuck with the rhythm of it a little bit but like you know it's it's like little pieces of language that you like interface with and see constantly and then you can do your own thing from there great hot damn dude well i could talk to you about this shit i could listen to you talk about this shit for fucking days dave's days of dave's dave dave days yeah but i don't want to take your life (laughs) (laughs) so i think this is a, a pretty good spot for us to to call it for the day um nether heaven is out September 9th. Yes. Sorry to take a very, uh, uh, as I was saying, it feels like a very abrupt turn, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, just right into Satanic Death Metal. <laughs> it's going to be the best jazz album of 2022. I really feel that. <laughs> There's no question. And there's one single out already, one uh, one music video, fucking great music video, by the way. So much about it um, tickles me. You guys playing in an, in an what was a church been turned into a skate park says so much to me um, <laughs> so everybody check that out there is a link in the description where you can pre-order the the album and of course listen to the single um plans for touring that you can reveal at this time I feel like you mentioned it briefly earlier yeah so right when the record comes out september 9th we embark on a full u.s and canadian tour i think we get back like it's runs from basically like mid-september to like mid-october so we're hitting a lot of cities uh we're going out with christian with alluvial with inoculation gonna be a killer lineup i think there really is something for everybody christian's got a new record coming out so that's really you know good timing there as well yeah it's it's, it's just gonna be a fucking killer tour so definitely come out to that we will be announcing a european tour wednesday that's all i can say about that but it's gonna be another headliner and we're really looking forward to that so i don't know if i could i probably shouldn't have even said that i think you know maybe even yeah. whatever nobody's watching this anyways we're perfect we're perfect. broadcasting to an empty uh <laughs> just, nope, to just nobody youtubing into the void right now <laughs> into the void 
Fuck. That's my life. Uh, so thanks for staring into the void with me for a little while. My pleasure, dude. Um, <laughs> that's the only reason I invite people on here. They think there's an audience. It's all bots. It's just right, you right. and me and the bots. Right. Perfect. But I learned something. And if you, if we're lucky, the bots learned something so that when the world ends um, and all the people are dead, they'll still be able to make great music. That's right. Yeah, we're doing this for the AI, you know, for our future robot overlords. Um, you know, may we be spared in the uh, upcoming robot uprising. We're, we're going to just, you know, teach teach music to like the weird hatchlings of the, the robot. <laughs> Little tiny robo children of the future. Right. Right. I'm like, we'll come not, out of the womb. You're not working on your two five ones, Zeltoid. You know, you got to really... <laughs> Shit. With that, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, I hope everyone watching learned a lot. And if you didn't, uh, I don't give a shit because I did. I've already heard the album, but I'm going to be continue to rock it. And is there a anything else? Only riffs. That's the takeaway. So songs don't matter. It's only riffs. That's that's what we. That's what we <laughs> Fuck yeah! Get it tattooed on your face, or you're a fucking poser. Riffs are all that matter. No bozos. No bozos allowed. All right, dude. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. I will catch you on the Flippy Floppy. Take care, man. Peace. Bye. All right. That was fucking great. I had such a good time. Huge thanks to Dave Dave. Revocation is one of the sickest bands on the planet. You know, the I, I can tell you that the album is so sick. Definitely one of their best ones. Um, I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time with it for sure. Thank you all for listening. Big thanks to DistroKid for sponsoring the podcast. Like I said, I literally am distributing music through them for tomorrow's video. Don't miss tomorrow's video. Barring any unforeseen complications, 11 a.m. PST right here on the Gear Gods YouTube channel. Uh, if you're watching on Twitch, then it won't be right here. You'll have to go all the way to my YouTube channel. Be sure to check out the link in the description to both get uh, the Nether Heaven pre-order situation um, and to get 7% off your first year of DistroKid if you're putting out music. DistroKid is the easiest and best way to get your music onto the internet. So be sure to sign up for that with my special link and you'll get a discount. Um, I do these every week, Monday, 11 a.m. PST. Friday, I do song critiques all day starting at uh, 1 p.m. PST live here on the channel. I go forever and ever. If you want to come hang out and get your songs roasted, I, it's, I call it roasting. It's not really roasted. It's thoughtful critique with occasional roasting and funny hats. But that's too long to put in the title. So come hang out here. Both that's uh, The live streams are always both on Twitch and on YouTube. And I love doing this. So I appreciate you guys hanging out. I'll see you all tomorrow. Don't you miss it. I'll see you real soon. Bye, guys.